Welcome everybody. Hope you had a great reinvent so far. Very excited to have the opportunity to speak with you all. My name is Paras Bua. I've been with Amazon for a little over seven years, and I currently work as the tech lead for migration specialist. In my role, I work with enterprises such as United Health Group, Anthem, Humana, and other customers to help them migrate to AWS, right? And uh, on the personal side, I'm married to my high school sweetheart for about 15 years Monday, so I better remember that date so I don't get in trouble. And I have two beautiful children, daughter's 12, son is two. And uh, you know, initially when I started working at Amazon about seven years ago, after the first week, you know, my daughter would ask me, Daddy, how many boxes did you pack? I'm like, uh, zero. And then a couple of weeks later, she's like, Daddy, did you pack any boxes finally? Did you get a job? Like, uh, I have a job, but I did not pack any boxes today. And then she goes, how come you get $100 a month for not packing any boxes, and I get 25 cents for cleaning my room? So that's an interesting thing that happened for, <laughs> for me personally. And you know, it's been an evolution. Now they love the Kindles, the Alexa, they, they love Amazon Prime, they love Amazon Music. So they're all getting very immersed into the ecosystem, right? And uh, they're still trying to, my, my daughter sort of now understands what I do at AWS and what the cloud is, what cloud computing is, right? So today we're here to talk about migrations to AWS. How do you set up the right foundation for enterprise transformation, right? So what can you expect from this session, right? Let's understand why migrations are foundational for enterprise transformation, right? We need to understand the why, right? And I'm not going to spend too much time on that slide, uh, especially because, you know, this is a 300-level session, so we got to get a little technical pretty deep into technology. Then let's talk about the migration methodology, right? Uh, for, for those of you that might not be familiar, let's go through that quickly. After that, we'll talk about the landing zone, right? And if you don't know what landing zone means, that's okay, we'll cover it, right? And then we'll talk about the migration factory, which is important so you can accelerate the pace of your migration to AWS. And then we'll have Rajiv come up here from United Health Group uh, very excited that he's here from UHG talking about their journey and their challenges and how they came about solving some of those challenges to succeed on AWS, right? And then finally, I'll leave you with some ideas on what you can do as soon as you get back. So let's answer this question, right? So I'm going to have you consider a few statistics, right? Think about this. The average life of an SMP company has gone down to only 15 years, right? Two-thirds of money, budget, goes towards KTLO, keeping the lights on. And 66% of CXOs still believe there is a security risk, right? What does this tell you? It basically tells you that you have to innovate. You have to move fast. You have to keep up with all the new startups that are coming in. And same thing for startups, right? They have, they've got to be able to compete. Now, if you look at the technology landscape, it's, very, it's gotten to the point where the playing field is equal for everybody. Right? Startups have the same access to the infrastructure that all of us have. Right? Enterprises have the same. Earlier, it used to be the cash-rich companies. Right? The enterprises only were the ones that had money to go procure expensive software and build all these big teams. But with, with the cloud, all that has fundamentally changed. Right? So if you look at some of the proven business values, these are you know, public statistics available on our site as well. Um, so you know, look at all these savings, right? And the one point specifically I'd like to call out is downtime, right? In the earlier days, we always used to have this problem where if you had a downtime, it took a long time and it, it took a lot of resources to come up. That has gone down 94% because of the way now you can now architect on AWS, right? The multi-AZ architectures, the multi-region architectures, you know, all the fault tolerance that is built in with, with these architectures, right? And even if you look at serverless, it becomes even more easier because now you're taking away the undifferentiated heavy lifting of even managing EC2 instances, for example. And in my career, and I'm sure you guys will agree with this, no company has ever been very successful based on how well they manage their infrastructure. It doesn't happen. Customers, companies are, are making progress and leading the way based on the features and services they provide to their customers. So if you look at the development velocity that AWS provides, you know, we've seen a typical 3x more features, which means that you can now have teams experiment a lot more than you could have in the past, right? So 
With that, let's look at some of the elements, right, of a successful journey. What does it look like? The number one thing, the absolute critical thing, is having executive sponsorship, right? You'll have small projects kick off, come on, come off, every now and then, right? They'll succeed. But if you are talking about a large migration, if you are talking about a company-wide transformation, it will not happen till the time you have support from the top, right? It just doesn't happen. So we've seen this over and over, thousands of migrations across customers. And the pattern is, if you have really good support from the top, you will have a very likely higher chance of you know, uh, succeeding in your effort, right? So the rest, I'm not going to read through all this, uh, but org change, you've got to define that well. Uh, you've got to have a good adoption roadmap. You've got to you know, look at establishing a cloud center of excellence, and these are the folks that build all these core services that the rest of the organization can use, right? So if you look at the migration, now let's talk about the migration journey, right? What does the process look like? First one is what we call you know, the business case, right? You've got to understand how much am I going to pay once I'm there? What are my savings? What do I have? And how do I move it, right? So you've got to prepare first for the migration, right? You've got to build that business case. You've got to make sure that the number is aligned. Right? And if you look at the savings, it, it's very obvious. Right? If you, you know, base your TCO on a utilization rather than an allocation percentage, you will, you will save a lot of money right there. Right? And then there are all these other factors that you can use, like optimizing costs using serverless, going from a, a monolith to a microservice model, going from an Oracle to Aurora, um, going from a commercial platform, data warehouse platform, Redshift. These are all ways that you can save a lot of money, right? The next one is what we see, you know, is portfolio discovery. Now, I'm yet to come across a company that has an up-to-date CMDB. Just doesn't happen, right? Over time, people come, people go, uh, changes get in, somebody's running a small uh, rack in their, in their office, right? Um, okay. And, uh, you know, those, those things, usually pile up to the point where you don't have enough uh, information, you don't have complete information, which is why you need to do a portfolio discovery and analysis, right? So we'll talk about some of the tools that you can use to do exactly that. The third one is the actual you know, migrations, right? This is where you're looking at setting up this factory approach, and we'll talk a lot about how do you set up this factory uh, for migrations, right? And then, Finally, you know, it's about operating and optimizing, right? I look at it and I say, look, you know, it's not just about operating in the cloud, but it's making sure that you are continuously optimizing for every aspect of your cloud usage, right? Of your IT infrastructure, of your business. It's about op make, making sure you optimize for cost, making sure you optimize for security, making sure you optimize for compliance, and all the other hosts of reasons that you would optimize for, right? With that, Let's talk about the landing zone, right? So for a moment, imagine that you are responsible for running an airport in a thriving metropolis, something like this, right? You are responsible for running this, right? You are the architect that uh, is running this currently, right? It's, for those of you that don't know, this is Canberra Airport. My friend John um, lives in Canberra, so I, he gave me this image. So thanks, John. And now, as an architect, you have to go from here to here. You have to build a big airport, right? Massive airport that supports international flights, supports hundreds of domestic flights every day, right? So what are the things you have to think about, right? You have to think about how does traffic move, right, for the planes, the vehicles supporting the planes. You've got to think about how do people move? How does staff move? Right? Who has access to what pieces? So where are passengers allowed to go? Where are they not allowed to go? Where, how does staff get into the airport terminals? How do you make sure that you're handling baggage in the right way? And you've got to have other things, because this is such a large airport, you've got to think about things like uh, quarantine, right? For, for things that are not allowed in the country. You've got to think about customs. You've got to think about immigration. Right? There are so many things that you've got to think about because this is such an expensive piece of, hard, piece of infrastructure. You've got to make sure that this is running at peak capacity. Right? Now, you might be thinking, Paras, this is great. 
how does this align to what I'm doing, going to do at AWS? Well, the same concepts apply. When you're on AWS, you've got to think about who has access to what. How does traffic flow within your VPCs? How does traffic flow from your on-prem data center to AWS? What calls are you going to be making? Who has access to what? Right? You've got to figure out all these things before you start building that airport, right? that big model that you're going to use. Now, a lot of customers will start with one account. Right? Maybe you're a single guy. Right? You're a single person. You're a person that has multiple projects, maybe. Right? So you start off on your journey, and you say, OK, one VPC. I'm going to start with a slash 16, big startup block. I'm going to deploy everything in there. But before you know it, other people are saying, well, you know, can, I get my, can I host my application in your account? You'll be like, sure. What happens if 50 people come and do the same thing? Right? Now you are running into a challenge where you're potentially stepping over each other and accidentally deleting somebody's resources or you're, you're you know, accidentally making mistakes. Right? I've seen customers with thousands of accounts. Right? Everybody gets an account. Right? Every division has an account. But for the most part, we see organizations somewhere in the middle. Right? So why is one account not enough? Right? First thing, you've got many teams. Right? A lot of teams within your organization, they have their own processes, which means you don't get the level of isolation that is required. Now, the way we look at it right, is the best isolation that you can have is an account. Right? The separation is at an account level. Right? It's no different if you spin up an account or if I spin up an account. The level of separation is the same. Right? It's, it's completely separate. It's distinct. You've got a lot of different teams have different security reasons. Right? They have different compliance controls. How do you manage that? Different teams have different business processes. Right? Maybe you know, you're a big uh, retail company. There's a B2B retail side, there's a B2C retail side, you might both have different processes that you need to adhere to. And finally, it's billing, right? How do I get the true separation from a billing perspective until I have a different account, a separate account, right? Now, you might be thinking, of course, you're going to tell me, go have multiple accounts, hundreds of accounts, because it means we're going to pay you more money, right? Guess what? Accounts are free, correct? IAM users and roles are free. There's no charge. There's no cost to creating more accounts unless you start instantiating resources and starting up resources in that account, right? So <coughs> the only reason we are, we, are, we are asking you guys to think about this, asking enterprises to think about this, is to truly get that level of separation, limit the, limiting the blast radius, right? If a bad actor gets into one account, that's fine, right? You just shut, shut that account. Right? But if a bad actor gets into your main account, if you only had one, we're in trouble, right? We have a lot of problem, right? Now, because one part of the business is impacted, which starts to spread across others, but if only one account is impacted, you're limiting that blast radius, right? So what are some of the goals, right? As you start to think about these things, right? Now, you're an architect that's building this massive piece of infrastructure. Some goals you've got to keep in mind, right? The first thing, you've got to keep it automated, right? You've got to make sure it scales. It scales up and down based on resources. You've got to make it self-service. So can I give you a service catalog right, of approved services and products that you can use for development? Can you make it easier? Can I have guardrails and not blockers? By this, I mean, so there are two types of controls. right? There's a preventive controls, pre preventive guardrails, and detective guardrails. Preventive guardrails are things that I absolutely don't want anybody to, uh, to do. right? For example, I don't want anyone to turn off CloudTrail in their accounts. And why is that? The reason is you, know, you, you want to know every action that is being taken on every account. You've got a centralized logging account where all these CloudTrail logs go. So that way, you know everything that's going on. So you might not want to have anyone have the ability to turn off CloudTrail uh, logs. Right? In that case, you can use a preventive guardrail. A detective guardrail on the other side, and I can maybe use a real story. When I started at AWS and Redshift was launched, I was super excited, right? So I went in, spun up a Redshift cluster, 
and like it's all easy for software developers, open up, open it up to the entire world, right? So I opened it up slash zero. Two hours later, I get an email with a ticket assigned to me saying I violated company policy. You are not supposed to have anything open in the public. Go fix it. And I was scared. I was like, oh my God, what happened? This is my first week, right? Uh, this is my first month trying a new service. But then, I, and then, you know, well, I had a public data set that, is, that didn't have any confidential information. I was able to go shut it down in the next five minutes, and I, we were able to resolve the ticket, right? But if you think about what it did to me, it started getting me to think. The next time, I got to be more careful, right? So the company allowed me to take a risk, but at the same time, corrected my behavior so I could be part of the solution. I, was, I felt like I was part of the security solution to make sure that this RefShift cluster and other clusters that might be open is secure, right? So how can we move towards that model where we are incentivizing our builders to go build new stuff and taking risks while having these detective guardrails to correct them if something is not right, right? Trust but verify, right? That's important. So if I can achieve five of these, I'm automatically able to achieve flexibility, right? So how do I go about building a landing zone? Now you must be thinking, okay, I understand the problem. I understand what my goals are. How do I build? Now you gotta start with the business needs, right? And this doesn't mean stop everything, panic, go write a bunch of business documents, no. But you've gotta have some level of business requirements that you start with, right? So we already talked about accounts. I'm not gonna get into it again, but maybe this is the first thing you do, right? You figure out your account structure. You gotta talk about, think about network, right? Where am I gonna route my domains? How does my, where am, I going, where am I going to host my domains? How does my on-prem data center communicate with AWS, right? You gotta think about that. You gotta think about where am I going to host my direct connect? How are these teams that are going to start building use that direct connect facility that I'm providing? You gotta think about security, right? Where do my logs go? How do I make sure my configuration changes are up to date? How do I make sure that I have OS images that are updated with the latest security software patches, right? To make sure that everybody is using the same image. And then you gotta think about IAM, right? This is concepts that are familiar to most of you. You gotta think about access. You might have invested in some identity solution. Can we use that to federate, right? You gotta think about that. And once you've built that, you gotta give it in the hands of users. Now these users are app teams that are gonna go build and deploy their applications on AWS, right? You gotta think about what kind of service catalog can I give them, right? Can I already have a list of approved software that they can just use so that way they don't have to go to security each and every time? Of course it needs automation, right? And then you gotta think about how are they gonna deploy this, right? What are the pipelines they're gonna to use to deploy this to the cloud? And then what's next, right? Once you've, so you've built this infrastructure, you gotta think about what's next. So I think about it in three ways, right? This is your airport infrastructure that you've built out, right? Expensive piece of infrastructure. You put in a lot of effort and thought into this. The three things that I think about is first, help customers migrate. So these are your internal teams that are migrating. You gotta iterate. Of course you're gonna learn, you're not gonna get it perfect on day one. You're gonna learn, you're gonna iterate, you're gonna make it better. And the same thing, right? You're gonna operate and you're gonna optimize it, right? So optimizing your landing zone is critical so that your teams can now start to innovate on the cloud, right? So I'm gonna go directly into this recommended landing zone slide. Now, don't panic, there's lots of stuff over here. Let's break it down, right? The first thing, you start with the organization's master, right? This is your master account that very select few people have access to. And at this layer, you can start to have service control policy like the one we talked about, right? Don't have the ability to turn off guardrails. For example, you can't turn off CloudTrail accounts. So even if you gave an account to someone in your company, they will not be allowed to turn off CloudTrail, right? And things like that, right? So maybe you have a highly, you know, it's, it's purely internal. You don't want anyone to have access to the internet via the IGW. You can put that as a service control policy right there, right? Now, the next level, right, is where you start talking about foundational OUs, right? These are foundational OUs that are core and managed by two teams, right? Security team and your infrastructure team. 
And if you look at the security teams, the one in the boxes in blue are OUs, the triangles are accounts, right? So you've got your security account, right? Your security OU, and within that you've got two OUs. Now, just like how we all develop applications, the security folks are also developing security tooling, right? Service control policies that they'll apply across. They're working at building tooling that is required for uh, you know, all sorts of security things, right? So that's why you have an SDLC and a production account, OU. And then you got your, you've got the same structure on the infrastructure side. Now on the, on the security side, you've got to think about log archives, right? Where do my logs go? You've got to have a security read-only account. You've got to have a break glass account, which is never used until the time a security account is compromised. Right? You never end up using that. Now, if you think about you know, the, the, the security tooling, we talked about it, right? where you have th these teams are building security tooling, and they're, they're thinking about how do I build the right tools so I can manage my infrastructure more securely. Right? Um, on the infrastructure side, you've got to think about shared services. Right? You've got to think about network, direct connect. How are my customers going to use it? Right? Now coming to the right, so those are your foundational OUs, right? You're figuring out all the core services that are required for all the teams to be able to consume, right? Now, if you look at additional OUs, the first thing is sandbox, right? Now, a company that, if you, if you heard Jeff Bezos talk, he talks about innovation, right? He talks about why we need experimentation. Some experiments will not work. Most experiments will not work, right? But some will. But the ones that will work, that do end up working, will pay for everything else. So think about Kindle. It was an experiment. Think about AWS. It was an experiment. Think about Alexa. It was an experiment, right? So what about, what if we give every new person that comes into a company an AWS account saying, go play with it, right? Go learn. Go innovate. Go experiment. Do, some, do whatever you want to do, right? Maybe host your personal blog. It's fine. Has a fixed spending limit, right? Maybe it's $50 or $100, right? Every month, this is all you get. So you're incentivizing. This becomes a perk for, for your employees, right? For new employees. This literally becomes another benefit that they get, right? Here they're going and learning all the new services. They're trying something new. Maybe it works, and then you can push it to a POC account, right? So uh, this, of course, is completely disconnected from the network. So anything that they do is isolated, right? It's within that one account. Cannot talk to anything else. Can't do anything else. The next one is where you're hosting your workloads. So same structure, you've got your STLC OU, you've got your uh, production OU, and this is where the deployment happens, right? The logs from the STLC go into the security SDLC OU. From production, it goes into production. Same for infrastructure as well, right? So it's all you know, clear swim lanes for each of these OUs. The next one is policy staging, right? You've got your service control policies that you're rolling out you're using for, for that. Next one is suspended accounts. These are accounts where an employee left, you're tagging it, you're putting it in the, in the OU, it stays there to a certain amount of time till you decide to you know, tear it down, right? Then you have individual business users that might have you know, unique use cases, right? So you have an OU for that. You've got exceptions. Of course you'll have exceptions, right? Some, uh, you know, let's say you're a large healthcare company, right, and you need to share uh, some policy documents with you know external vendors for whatever reason, you can you know highly regulated. You got to be very careful. It needs an exception from security. You put it in that OU, right? And then you've got your final deployments OU where you're basically doing all your deployments. So if you think about this structure, right? Now of course your structure might be you can use this using control tower, but you got to think about you know, all these different aspects as you start to build your landing zone. Where are you going to land your workloads? And how are you making sure that your teams are innovating at the pace that you, they should be innovating, right? Experiment. Give them, give them access. Use detective guardrails, right? So with that, let's now pivot into, well, all this is great. I built my framework. I've got, the, got this ready. How do I now start to migrate using a factory approach. So if you look at our approach, right, very high level, 30,000 feet, you've got your portfolio assessment, you've got your migration uh, phase, then you've got your operations phase. The first one is where you're really planning, right? You're really figuring out what are those assets, what are those applications 
that I'm going to first discover, right? How do I, what do I want to do first, right? What do, I want to make sure that I have, you know, selected applications that are, you know, maybe easy to move or maybe have a business need, right? Uh, so you're having an app, a backlog of applications that are ready to you know, go into the assessment phase. The next one, you're getting into the migration phase, right? This is where you're starting to use those repeatable assets, like tooling, things like that, to get into the migration phase. And then you're doing cutover, operating, and optimizing. So if you think about the key roles of a migration factory, on the left, you've got the business office. You know, these are the, the, you know, the finance folks, the business folks, the business leaders. Uh, that make decisions on how they want to see their apps moving. Of course, it's somewhere if, it's, you know, if you're a retail company and if it's somewhere closer to Thanksgiving, you don't want to touch your retail website, right? So these guys will have, you know, these folks will have input into how you design your, uh, your migration plan. You've got a migration program manager as well who's doing all the tracking and helping you manage the program at scale. And then at the bottom, you've got the foundational layer and these are the cloud platform teams. These are the teams that are building that foundation layer like the the, the, the landing zone that we talked about, right? So these are the teams that are doing that, right? Then you've got your app owners and support teams. These are the folks that actually own their applications and also support them, right? And these are the folks that will actually end up migrating as well because they know where they're going and how they want to migrate, right? On the migration factory side, you've got you know, portfolio leads and multiple migration leads that are primarily looking at repeatable patterns and what can be you know, put in from an automation perspective to continue to uh, increase the velocity of the migration, right? So with that, let's talk about the, you know, the seven hours of migration, right? Now, every application in your portfolio will have one of these seven hours. The most common that you see is rehost, right? I've got a bunch of x86 compatible you know, hardware here, Linux, Windows, whatever. I'm just gonna pick them up, use some tools, move them to AWS. It's the first thing, right? The next one, you might say, well, can I move my HR system to Workday or you know, my sales application to Salesforce, right? Uh, that's where you talk about you know, repurchasing, right? Buying a carts, commercial off-the-shelf or a software as a service, right? Maybe you move towards that. Replatform is what I like to call lift, tinker, and shift. You know, lift and shift with minor refactor. So think about things like moving from an F5 load balancer to an elastic load balancer. Right? Simple, easy to do. Think about moving from an Akamai maybe to a CloudFront. Again, that's you know, value proposition from a cost perspective and from a scale perspective. Um, and it's fairly, you know, it's, it's easier to do that, right? Uh, compared to rewriting the whole thing. The next one is, you know, refactor. This is, what, this is where we start to think about, for example, you have a large monolith and you need to break it down into a microservice model. How do I do that? So I'm gonna tear it apart. I'm gonna re-architect it. I have teams going and building software. Building those, you know, in smaller ways. Maybe use a strangler pattern, right? You start to slowly strangle pieces of the application before you completely cut over and migrate out of that, right? Uh, and then you've got the relocate, which is, you know, for VMware and AWS. This is a pattern. And the last two ones are, you know, things that you decide to either retain because it's not very critical, or you decide to just retire, right? So this is important context for you to have before we get into the subsequent uh, slides, right? So tooling. The next one we'll talk about is tooling. Very important that you have tooling as part of your migration factory, right? So if you look at the tooling portfolio, you know, AWS provides a large portfolio of tools that you can use in every phase of your project, right? So for example, if you had to do a TCO analysis, right? A detailed business case, TSO Logic, which is a company we acquired back in 2018, December, December 2018, you could use that. You could use Migration Hub, which, will basic, which is basically the one-stop shop for you to be able to manage and track your migrations, right? If you look at the, you know, the second phase, which is the readiness and planning, um, you can use your application discovery service, right? This is an agent-based solution that you can deploy to your hosts and get detailed information about what's running in what servers, what are the processes, what are the threads, so you can really get a detailed view so you can make in informed decisions on which move first and which move next. And how do you actually provision, right? You might have, and it'll capture things like utilization data, so you might have applications that are you know, provisioned at 100%, but only utilizing 50%, right? So you can downsize those instances when you get into AWS. If you look at the execution phase, of course, I'm not gonna touch on all these given we, we don't have enough time, uh, but you know, two services that I'd like to call out. One is Cloud Indoor, which will help you migrate 
at a block level, you know, block level replication tool, right? So it'll help you migrate your VMs from on-prem to AWS. This is another company that we acquired last year or early this year, right? And then database migration service where you can have homogeneous and heterogeneous migrations. So homogeneous migrations are where you're moving from one engine to the same engine. So maybe you have a Microsoft SQL Server and you're moving to a Microsoft SQL Server, right? Which is a pattern that we see for customers when they want to just get off their data centers due to whatever you know, reasons they have. Maybe it's a data center exit strategy, maybe it's a modernization strategy. So they move out from maybe SQL Server to SQL Server to start with. Heterogeneous migrations on the other side, and you heard you know, Andy talk about migrations, and you heard him talk about database migrations at his keynote, right? We see a lot of customers moving to uh, Amazon Aurora, right? So if you have an Oracle, for example, which, which you, know, you want to get out of, right, uh, you can move to Amazon Aurora Postgres, right? So we recently at, AW, at Amazon completed our entire Oracle migration uh, and you might have seen some you know, uh, press release or videos on, on Twitter, right, where the teams went and shut things down the last instance. So they moved, we moved an, our entire data warehousing platform to Amazon Redshift, right? So, so think about you know, tools that you can utilize as you go through building your migration factory and so that you can accelerate the migrations, right? So how do I set up a migration factory? I create a tiger team first, right? I have a team of experts in every area that can go in and build those foundational standards. I see the migration backlog, right? I have these apps, of, apps that I've already assessed. Now I can start to move them, right? Um, I define the migration methodology, right? This is the seven R's that you know, we talked about a couple of minutes ago. Uh, pick which R, which strategy you're going to go for every application. Then I run it in an agile manner. I actually get into the factory model, saying, guys, we've picked out the you know, which uh, uh, strategy we're going to use. Maybe it's a rehost or replatform. If it's a rehost, it's straightforward, right? You, you move them into the migration phase. If it's a refactor, uh, you know, you, you give them specifications on what are the things that need to be refactored, right? And then you see continuous improvement, right? And in the middle of all this, right, you see you have these modernization opportunities, right? <coughs> Moving from a monolith to a microservice model, Moving from a, you know, old guard technology vendor to a you know modern database like Amazon Aurora, right? So, uh, I also have a passion for serverless. How any any of you have passions for API Gateway, Lambda, Dynamo? No, oh, great. Okay, few people, right? So uh, last year I had the opportunity to speak with Fender, Fender Guitars, those you know amazing guitar company, uh, and you know they moved from they moved a monolith from Oracle to DynamoDB, right? It's complete. So schema from a schema-based monolith to a NoSQL database using a microservices approach. And if you look at some of the results, the whole talk is available on on YouTube. So you know, feel free to take a look. Uh, this is where you know, customer and us and me, we get into a lot of detail around microservices, API gateway. There's even a demo in there if you're interested to go take a look, right? So amazing results, right, that they achieved. 41 customers, you know, uh, I don't know how to go back, but, you know, how they eliminated their hardware purchasing. So for, yeah, so 41 currencies, you know, big landscape, right? They eliminated hardware purchasing and licensing. At least a 50% page load improvement. Then this, this is a big app, right? This is the dealer portal that's used by thousands of dealers across the world. Uh, their license maintenance costs went down 100%. Customer satisfaction went up significantly. Orders went up, again, significantly. And this is the favorite part. They are paying 51 cents for 10 Lambda functions in production, right? So think about that scale. It's, it's really cost-effective, really well-architected. So here's their architecture, right, that they built out. Now, obviously, I'm not going to get into every piece of the architecture, but you can see that they're using Node.js. They've got a bunch of Lambda functions. They're using SES, Elastic Cache, API Gateway, DynamoDB, CloudFront, DirectConnect. So truly modern architecture, right? Another example is this one, right, where you have a web application that can scale across millions of concurrent users for 
you know, very, very large audience, right? So let's say you're running a poll across a billion people and you had to build this application that is going to run that poll. This is how you could do it in a truly serverless way, right? So if you look at this architecture, none of this architecture has any component that requires you to manage infrastructure, right? No EC2, no EBS, nothing, right? It's all serverless, scales dynamically, up and down based on your the need, right? And then I'm using techniques such as aggregations using DynamoDB streams so that I'm not overburdening one DynamoDB table and running into things like a hotkey issue, right? Which happens if there is, from an indexing perspective, it happens when there is extreme load on one side of the partition, right? So uh, some really interesting architectures there I thought I could share with you. And with that, I'd like to welcome Rajiv Cyrus from United Health Group to walk us through their journey. Hey folks, you hear me okay? Excellent. So um, that's me, Rajiv Cyrus. I work for UHG United Health Group. Um, here to talk to you about some of the challenges that we faced as a large enterprise with adopting public clouds and Amazon here, AWS. Um, United Health Group's a pretty big company. Um, it's made up of United Healthcare and Optum, particularly. I work at Optum. My badge is orange. My paycheck is blue. That's like they say, right? So, but of the numbers, there's about 300,000 employees between UHC and Optum. But 181,000 of them are in Optum themselves. And uh, roughly, you know, 40,000 are software engineers. We have um, a large number of applications and lines of businesses, many, many thousands. So when um, I was asked to do this talk, I kind of thought about what would be interesting to talk about for enterprise migrations. Um, we could talk about how applications can be modernized, moved over, lifted and shifted, or I thought it might be more interesting from your seats here to think about the challenges or learn about the challenges a company like mine has when we do this, right? So it's not just a scale, it's a big company, we have big data stuff, but really it's the scope is the problem that we face. Optum, again, it's just part of the company. When I talk about the things we do here, uh, Optum, we, at Optum we develop the frameworks that we have for this, but it works across the entire enterprise. But this is just Optum here, you know, four to five health plans are touched by our products Nine or 10 providers, hospitals and so on, are using our products. 121 million consumers, that's just 121 million individual users. That's 121 times all of these things. All 50 states, federal agencies, you name it. We have uh, quite a bit of data, every classification, PHI, personal health information, PII, PCI, you name it. We have to meet any number of compliance regulations, HIPAA, uh, FISMA, RZ, all the stuff, right? So the, the scope is very large. Uh, many thousands of applications of all across the globe made by any number of those groups of engineers and with different technologies. So this talk is kind of broken into two parts. The first part is this, right? This kind of touches on what Praz had mentioned earlier about um, the enterprise journey. So it's interesting when him and I were speaking about putting this deck together, we already did this organically, right? Um, we weren't engaged with the partner service at that point. This is uh, uh, several years ago we came up with this, right? But the, the essentials, these four things kind of touch on that big enterprise journey landscape thing he had shown earlier. Um, leadership support, vision, stakeholders, and plans kind of collapses all down together. So the first one, leadership support. Um, Peraza mentioned earlier too, this one's critical, right? More often than not, and this happened at uh, UHG, Optum, folks uh, will just get a cloud account. They'll put it on their corporate card, their purchasing card, whatever, they'll start doing something. Uh, who knows if they're compliant, what kind of data they're putting up there. As soon as that's found out, it's pretty much a shutdown. You know, it's not gonna be successful. What you have to have is your executive leadership understanding what we're trying to do with cloud so we can get on board. But when you do that, as you just can't say, go to cloud, Mr. CEO or whoever, right? We have to find the parameters and what the expectations are for the company. So at Optum, 
our parameters were pretty, were pretty um, easy to start with, right? Our data centers are fine. We're not evacuating data centers. We want to use public cloud capabilities. We're not an infrastructure company. We don't have a lot of the really cool features AWS has. We want to use some, or all of them. But um, our, we have huge data gravity. We have compliance needs, contract needs. Our data centers are going to stay around. So the parameter is when we migrate applications, can we take the opportunity to also modernize at the same time? Um, so the expectations are, if, if you're a first wave application team that wants to migrate to a public cloud or AWS, you're gonna have to help us build our framework, right? I'll, I'll further slides down, I'll, I'll talk about what that is and kind of what I mean by help us build the framework. So, so we set the cloud bar higher, right? So um, we had the seven R's, our, we really focus on the first two, uh, refactory platform. Lift and shift is not part of our landscape today. It will be in the future as, this, as we evolve this framework. So that framework evolution, so on, that's kind of a vision, right? So we have um, keep your North Star because as you start to break down these four steps or these uh, four categories, there's a lot of noise that, that kind of creeps in, a lot of different directions you get pulled into, a lot of things you have to solve. But if you have that vision set, you know, put it in a frame, put it way up high, whatever, put a bunch of lights on it, always keep that in mind. So at Optum, our main vision is we want to be cloud native. Whenever we put workloads into AWS or other public clouds, we have to be cloud native as much as possible using lambdas, RDS, EMR, whatever, right? Because that's the whole point. We're pushing all that work down that we don't want to do to Amazon. That's why we have the uh, um, uh, agreements, right? So our frameworks have to be flexible and of course modern. So when we modernize, use the modern frameworks, everything is code and community evolve it. And I will touch on those two things in a bit here, but I think those two are, are more important ones. Well, stakeholders. Stakeholders are your key groups, right? That's just not your customers. Inside of Optum, our customers are ourselves and commercial customers that we sell products to. But that also means like your IAM team, your enterprise security, network security, um, uh, procurement, legal, right? If you don't include your stakeholders early on or as you iterate through this, you're gonna find yourself in a spot where, what about me, right? You didn't talk to me about this. You've already done a lot of work, but you have to undo it now because I have needs that you have to cover. So like a, for a couple examples here at Optum, our enterprise security standards were established for our private data centers, not for public clouds. So if we had to be compliant with our enterprise needs, we couldn't necessarily use some of the great features that public clouds like Amazon or AWS has, um, mostly around networking stuff, right? Um, <clears throat> our stakeholders with our business lines of businesses we have to have, make sure that when we modernize our applications, they're using public clouds, they're doing it responsibly. They're doing it the best way possible, using the native tools. Some of our application teams need to level up as they go around. Leveling up means getting used to what, working in the cloud, how infrastructure works, how serverless works, how um, key value stores work for relational databases. And then of course, plan, right? What's a, you can't do anything without a plan. So, after you work with your stakeholders, you have your leadership support, you kind of set some first milestones, execute a plan. It's always, you know, just like any sort of software development process, accountability, definition of done. Key things. So at Optum, our first milestones, our first plans, no code, organizational changes. The biggest thing that we, we've struggled with at the beginning were that. Um, what I mean by that is, um, working with your stakeholders, like again, I'll use the security example again because it's something I was personally involved with uh, to a large degree, of talking about how we reframe our, our intents for what we know to what we need to do in the future. Um, getting those groups on board and being partners with you on that, right? So that was a lot of work. And then um, we wanted to set up a, a foundation for community practice. 
since uh, I'll talk about this again in a minute here, um, we do everyth everything as code. Infrastructure is code, policy is code, documentation, process. Um, that also means a community of practice because that's a, that's a new thing for some folks. And there's guidelines, right? So, and then we want people to contribute. So our first iterations, um, some learnings here. I think a key, the key decision that we made early on was this everything as code idea again here, right? So what this means is that if you can put stuff into runnable code, like we use Terraform all over the place, great, right? If you can't, like writing a security policy is kind of difficult sometimes for this, write it as close to the metal intent as possible. Like get, get down to the why, not the how. What's the intent that this um, need has? Uh, network policy, what are they actually trying to ask you to do here rather than tell you how to do it? If you do it this way, you kind of already, already have frameworks to fully automate your governance, right? Because that's kind of where we want to be at Optum, UHD, is to all of our major lines of businesses, all the main lines of businesses, they can't, uh, we can't, they can't be held back by a gatekeeping team to make sure they've done everything correctly. We want to be able to, to apply our enterprise standards as codified process so they can work as fast as they possibly can across the board. There's no level, it's all as fast as you can go. We want you to do it, <coughs> excuse me. However, it's not all roses, right? Um, it's the iteration. So some of our first, uh, first challenges or first opportunities here um, came up again with organizational changes. I have an example here, like um, our internal networks and our data centers, they follow like most other large enterprises data centers are, you know, it's a castle moat structure, if you will. It's more sophisticated than that, but you know, give me that one. Um, but we have rules, right? If you have two network segments, they have to be routable, but as soon as they're routable, they have to transverse through um, data loss prevention, DLP, big giant firewalls, you name it, right? That's the standard. But it doesn't make sense in a public cloud world, especially how we constructed ours, where we follow the many, many account um, rule. Every line of business, every application has its own account. That's all by itself, right? So if they have separated their, their VPCs into subnets, the network security groups or the controls are important, but there's no DLP because it's not mixed data anymore. It's my own data. I'm not losing my data to myself, so I don't need to do that, right? So that's a rewrite on that, on that portion. The bottom two things here are really, really um, um, iterations here. So our DCE, this is our sandbox. DCE is a disposable cloud environment, which I'll cover again here, um, became a priority because uh, as much as we, as much, as matter, our engineers are, are high standards, there still needs to be education uh, level set. We need a way for our engineers to be able to be learn in a cloud environment in a destructive way without destroying or touching um, business, right? So that's the sandboxing up. We have more detail about what that is. And of course, center of excellence. Keep this thing going, get it up and running, and have that be um, a, a first principle. So this is a cycle, right? Not necessarily a linear cycle. Each one of these things can spin around themselves over and over again. But as you go, you really are engaging your stakeholders with your plans. If um, your vision changes or you add to your vision, get your leaders to support you so they know what's happening, set the parameters and expectations. So the second part of our talk is a little more about how we built this framework. There's several categories here. Um, um, safe experimentations, DICE, DCE, reusable patterns, that all comes down to how we build our code, our, our everything that's code blocks together to produce uh, ways to deploy environments. Um, security baseline, configuration validation. So like with configuration validation, since we did everything that's code, we can do some pre-flight before our Terraform goes out the door, right? So we can even check for violations before things happen. Like I'll pick on Paraz here. If, I, if he was using this framework, he could never have set that um, redshift to be open, right? 
could find it afterwards, but that would have stopped him from doing it. So uh, one accelerator is an intake process. So since we have a really strong way of doing disposable cloud environments, our accounts are production accounts. That means there's gonna be an actual workload there. So there has to be an intake process for our application teams to, to use. However, we don't want to be gatekeepers too much. Like we don't wanna stop, we don't wanna have 6,000 teams asking our intake team, which is, might be just a few individuals, to help them figure out their stuff. It'll never work. So build an objection, uh, objective workflow with your everything as code, your procedures as code. So everybody that wants an account has a perfect understanding of what's expected of them before they even ask for these accounts. So when that's ready to go, it's, it's almost a non-issue, right? The idea here too is eventually this will be fully automated or automated as far as we can make it, I guess. You know, DICE, DCE here. Now I have colleagues here at reInvent. Um, they have just uh, finished their talk about this. I highly encourage you to take it out, check it out. I'm very, very proud of the work they have done on this one here. What DICE is, is a way for us to have transient uh, cloud accounts. So it's a little more in the sandbox. It could be things for destructive learning. These can be things where you can put uh, workloads, experimental workloads. Let's say you're a data scientist and you just want to run a data science VM with some data. And let's say you, just, you forget about it, right? Well, this gets blown up anyways, it's destroyed. It's totally nuked, you can do it all over again. Um, Instant access, totally self-service. We can provision accounts all day long. We can do this forever and ever and ever. We have thousands of developers working on this at once if they want to. So this is our primary way of doing everyday work on Optum at a for a cloud team. This has just been open sourced, um, like literally just now. That's why this, it's not in this slide, but it's at github.com slash optum slash DCE. Um, please check it out. It's really powerful stuff and they did some great work there. And then one last accelerator, or not one last, but one other accelerator here is our idea of a launch pad. Not quite a landing zone. This actually predates landing zones as far as we knew about them. And this one has more, it does, it does things beyond what landing zone can do for you. Um, our application teams focusing on delivering applications, services, data, you name it. Our cloud teams will deliver the infrastructure per account or there can be a little blurred line in between. You know, there is a line there just to, for illustration purposes, but if an app team wants to control some infrastructure, go right ahead. But they really can't touch the green stuff. That's where we keep our protections on our accounts. So, um, like the OU policies for, for uh, Amazon organizations, which we do use for this instance here. You, know, you can't turn off CloudWatch, you can't turn off other things, but then also we enforce um, uh, configuration validations, drip detection, network baselining, and other controls. And our central logging, which works across all of our accounts, works across all of our uh, compute environments, private cloud, and others. And then we get a holistic view of what all, our accounts are doing, <clears throat> all of our accounts are doing, in the sense we have you know, thousands. One last accelerator, um, again, not last, sorry. Another one here is our inner source model. It's open source, but we're a giant company. We can do our own stuff internally and make it feel like it's a open source thing. So, since we are fully infrastructure as code with these, everything we're talking about here, we build these Terraform modules. And since we have our security policies written in a way that can be applied as code, we can endorse our modules, our Terraform modules, ahead of time. So if I'm building a new environment and I'm pulling together uh, ECS and uh, the egress proxy and S3 and RDS, I can pull those modules together and skip any sort of security review with those things, as long as I'm using the, the correct tagged ones, the most current ones, et cetera, and I haven't modified them. So what this graph here shows, it's a little bit of a fuzzy, fuzzy graph. It shows the visual, individual uh, effort to build, any more contributions, contributions, and then the amount of reuse, right? So these, some of these things are reused constantly and um, saves a ton of time, major reuse. Another, another thing we have done here is since the, the cloud team has made a lot of these, if there's a new service, like some of the new services that were launched this week, we haven't got around to making those modules yet. There are tight guidelines for you to build your own 
and they contribute back to the core. So then somebody else can use them again, um, and so on and so forth, right? It's been, this has been an incredibly successful initiative inside of Optum. Finally, a last accelerator is, um, this is kind of our version of like a migration factory. Uh, we expect most of our application teams to do their own migrations for the applications, but however, um, they might need any one of these six categories or all of them, right? They might need uh, some education, some training, staff augmentation. If they're using vendors in their products, can we have our vendors meet with our AWS professionals to um, help figure out what this out is, is out? So the idea is there is a, we do have a team that can help our application teams work together and then either move away or continue on. So I'll wrap up with some of the results here. So since we have so much uh, stuff that's done as code, we can automate a lot, pretty much everything that we, we put our minds to. So 70% of effort of time is pip pipelining everything. We made 3 million automated configuration changes in 2019. And of course, our operation maintenance labor has gone, gone way, way down because we don't have to stop the world, have midnight deploy sessions. It just, just goes, right? <clears throat> and I'll skip to the modernization one. Since we kind of insist that our first movers modernize at the same time, they can take advantage, just like uh, Peraza's fender example, uh, cost savings. You know, moving off of uh, monolithic uh, uh, application containers down to serverless or using um, better utilizing databases. And of course, the classic cost savings uh, argument applies very greatly. We just don't have overused capacity or unused capacity in a cloud model because it's all elastic. Like in private data terms, we, we forecast, we buy, we may or may not use it. So that's, our, that's kind of our story. I know it's uh, not maybe as deeply technical, but any one of those things we talked about, I could have spent an hour or two talking about. There's some really cool stuff there. Uh, please check out DCE. Um, I'm really, again, proud of that work. And I'll uh, get Pros back up on stage. All right. All right. Thank you, Rajiv. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's always the best case, right, when you can hear from peers, and if you can hear, if you can learn something from a company of United Health Group size, which is you know, by far the world's largest healthcare company, right? Uh, it's incredible work that you guys have done. Thank you for sharing the story. Now, before I wrap up, you know, I have a, a short summary of what I'd like you to take to your office, right? Uh, we can't keep it all in, right? Especially given the amount of content that you guys have been exposed to over the week. If there are three things that I want you to take away from this talk. Right? These are those, right? These are those three things. First, right, we, you know, Rajiv talked about the challenges that they went through at UHG, uh, and we've seen this across customers, right? First thing, make sure that you have absolute buy-in from your executives, executives, right, in your company. May, having leadership support makes it so much easier to embark on such a large journey, right? Second, Making sure that your landing zone is built to a way, in a way where you, know, you really are allowing your teams to innovate and scale, experiment, fail fast, and, and hopefully you know, succeed uh, along the way on multiple of these experiments, right? Uh, making sure that is set up correctly is very important. So I would encourage you to spend time learning about the landing zone. We've got Control Tower, which will make it really easy for you. Uh, it even has a nice UI where it'll show you all the OUs that you've got, all the accounts, uh, and all the detective and preventive guardrails, and if there are any findings and things like that, right? So if you want to learn more about Control Tower, just look it up in the app. I'm sure there are more sessions today and tomorrow, right? And the last one is building that migration factory, right? Getting that piece correct with all the tools, the processes is extremely important, right? And, you know, Rajiv talked about how they, how United Health Group was able to drive a lot of efficiencies by having repeatable content, right? So all the policies that these guys have built in Terraform are used so many times. It's an initial investment that your teams made, but over time it was significantly useful for a lot of their teams that, so that they could basically use what they already have and accelerate that journey, right? So very important there. 
uh, automation, automate, automate, and automate, super important. Find every opportunity that you can find and, and spend the time automating it so that you will save significant amount of time later, right? Uh, obviously, optimization is another one, right? Uh, smooth serverless, if you can move to, you know, uh, models where you can get away from the undifferentiated heavy lifting. It makes life easier for everybody and everybody sleeps well as well. With that, I want to thank you for coming. Enjoy the rest of reInvent and please complete the survey when you find time. Take care. Thank <laughs> you.